good. We're going to dive back into the Nicene Creed. Starting with we believe. We, who's we? Well, we just said the Nicene Creed together, right? Or probably a better word than said is confessed or proclaimed. So those of us in this room, those who have adopted the statement of personal devotion or will, that's the first part, right? How about each of our ecclesial communities? Catholic. Lutheran, Anglican, Hope Chapel, others. They would, they would be part of this we, right? Isn't the Eastern Church part of this we? Yes. In fact, this creed was written by the Eastern Church. In the first council of 325, there were some hundreds of bishops from the East that came. There were seven from the West. The seven did not include the Pope. He sent a delegate. In the Council of 381, it was all Eastern bishops. Nobody from the West came. Wow. So this is an important point for us. We in the West, Catholic and Protestant, have received this creed from the East. This should be a statement for us of gratitude and of humility. We made it our own, right? But it was, it was really a gift from the East. So that's a really good question. So if you meet an Eastern Orthodox, one thing you can say right off the bat is, thank you for the Nicene Creed. And that will honor them, literally, really. If you say that to somebody from that tradition, that will honor them because it's a gift that you've received from their tradition. In fact, the vast majority of followers of Jesus throughout history would say, they're part of this we. So I love the we. The we is great. The Apostles' Creed is an I creed. It's a baptismal creed. The Nicene Creed is a we creed. It's a community creed. It's a body of Christ creed. So when we say this, we say we're not interested in being novel or innovative or unique. We're proclaiming our continuity with the tradition. We're proclaiming our unity with the saints both present around the world and throughout time. So similar in that way to the ire in our Father. I love the ire in our Father. Whenever you say the Lord's Prayer, think about who you're including in that ire. Now, the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox change the we to an I for liturgical purposes. So when you're in Mass, you say, I believe, not we believe. But I love the we. We're sticking with the we at CPR. Okay? Believe. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. This is said in the New Testament, I think in uh, the Peter. So I like the belief, too. Why do I like the belief? Because it leaves a lot of room. First of all, it's a statement of our faith. And faith, we could spend the whole day talking about faith, we're not going to. There's a lot of talk about faith, a lot of preaching about faith. It leaves a lot of room for our brothers and sisters in Christ to believe other things as well as what's in this creed that perhaps we don't believe. So when we say the creed, he says, here's what we believe. Now someone else might say, oh, I also believe X. 
could give a lot of examples. Someone else might say, well, I don't believe that. I believe why. But we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty. So this is really critical for Christ the Reconciler, is that we hold the Nicene Creed in common, and we give each other permission to believe other things that we don't necessarily believe. And that doesn't cause division. We still say, you're my brother and sister in Christ. Does that make sense? There's a lot there. I'm going to move on pretty fast, but, but you know, sometimes we might tackle that because there's a whole, then you can say, okay, what are the crucial things? You know, and everybody has their own opinion on that. Well, the Nicene Creed is a, a really lovely place to just sit in common. Okay? Now, as a matter of fact, I have brothers and sisters in Christ who don't believe in the Nicene Creed and don't hold it. And I still consider them to be also brothers and sisters in Christ. They have reasons they don't receive the Nicene Creed. Okay? So believe has to do with faith. I love this from 1 Corinthians 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is faith. It's love. Oh, it's love. That was just what I was talking about. So faith is an indispensable foundation. You can't get rid of it. But the greatest is love. So as we interact with each other and with other members of the body of Christ, let's realize that we hold the same faith, but our goal is love. Okay? Now, hope's in the middle. I love hope because hope has to do with the second coming. Right, Sandy? Yeah. Yeah. So we have the foundation, the end, and then how to operate in the middle. All right? Okay. We believe. We believe in one God. Sandy's going to cover this in more detail in the afternoon, so we're not going to spend any time here now. I believe she has a really important word for us. You've already gotten a little bit of a feel for it with the children. Okay? Sandy, we're looking forward to what you have to bring to us. We believe in one God, the Father. I'm pausing because here's where I need to slow down. We're going to look at the Father. Now, if we spend a lot of time on the Father, once again, we can not only do the whole day, we can do a 10-day retreat. So we're not going to cover the Father in all of its glory and detail. How will we approach it? We're going to approach it as we approach the Nicene Creed as a community. The Nicene Creed is a meditation on the Trinity. Okay? Amy says, said that it made it into the newsletter. The Nicene Creed, let's think of it as a meditation on the Trinity. We believe in the Father, we believe in the Son, we believe in the Holy Spirit. You saw that in Jim's song. So, I'm not going to so much come from a theological point of view as to say, let's meditate a little bit on the Trinity with this idea of fatherhood. Okay? That's going to be my approach. So, who is he the father of? Andrew. All of us. 
All of us. Good. Anyone else? Life. Father of life. All things seen and unseen. <laughs> All things seen and unseen. That's right. Fatherhood has very closely connected with creation. God is first the father of the son. That's where fatherhood starts. Psalm 2. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Messianic psalm. You are my son. You see a beautiful reflection of this in Mark. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, Psalm 2, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. This is a beautiful moment because you see the unity of the Trinity in this one picture. The Son, the Spirit, the voice of the Father. Ah, I get Excited just reading this verse. Back to Psalm 2. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Well, that should make us think of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So you see Psalm 2 reflected in Mark. You also see Psalm 2 reflected here at the beginning of John. This is where we get the begotten of the Father, the only begotten Son. It's not the only place, but significant place. All right? So the Father, when we think about the Father, the first place we have to think about is he's the Father of the Son. That's how fatherhood is defined. Any other expression of fatherhood derives itself from the relationship of God the Father with God the Son. Now, one of the things we love to say here is we are invited into the unity of the Trinity. So how does this work in this particular way of the Father and the Son? Well, let's look at this in John. Because John, I think, makes a real point of this in a beautiful way. So in John 1.13, at the beginning, he gives this little hint. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's this little hint. There's a possibility. God is the father of the son, but wait, there's more. There's the possibility that others could have God as their father too. Now, the interesting thing in John is Jesus makes a real point of saying not God is your father and my father, of saying God is my father. 
This is, if you look at all the instances of Father and John, you will not find Jesus talking to anybody else and saying, God is your Father. Here's an example, John 4, the woman at the well. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers worship the Father, not your Father, not their Father, in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. A little more pointed here, John 8. Then they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would know my father also. It gets even more pointed. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to him, if God were your father... You would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. This is pretty intense. This is not just a little side point. Jesus is hammering this point home. He is a liar and the father of lies, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So this is pretty depressing so far. <laughs> right? Yeah. He's talking to who? Gentiles. He's talking there to the Pharisees. But surely when he talks to his disciples. Well, let's see. John 14. In my father's house are many rooms. Oh, but then there's a little bit of hope. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Once again, there's this little hint possibility. And if I go and prepare, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas asks an excellent question. What a God. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, not your Father, except through me. Once again, there's exclusion, but there's hope. See that? What's happening here? Jesus said to him, Did I say that already? Yes. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you do know him and have seen him. Once again, my father, but you guys are getting close. Yes? Maybe this isn't relevant to this discussion, but do you think he's making a point of, you know, um, like a lot of the fixation on Abraham and Moses and the forefathers being their literal lineage, and he's distinguishing, like, my father, like, I'm not referring to to those prophets or to those um, fathers of the faith. It's part of it. I mean, you see that in John chapter 6. where They say, we have right. Moses as our father. We have right. Abraham as our father. So do you think he's distinguishing from, from that trying to talk about the spirit? That's part of it. But wait till the end here and you'll see where it's going. Because in other Gospels, I think this is something John is saying... In other Gospels, right at the beginning, Jesus says, hey, let me teach you how to pray. Our Father. So I'm not saying 
that that's invalid. What I'm saying is John is making a point. Okay? So then, after John 14, we know what happens, right? Jesus is crucified, died, and rose again. Then, pretty much the first thing he says, that the women come to the tomb, right? And what does he say to them? This is so beautiful. This is so beautiful. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I mean, Jesus couldn't be emphasizing this, or rather John couldn't be emphasizing this aspect of what Jesus is saying anymore. My Father and your Father. Go to my brothers. It's the first time he's called the disciples his brothers in John. So what is he saying here? He's saying something happened at the cross. The way was opened at the cross for the relationship that God the Son has and has had eternally with God the Father to suddenly be available to other people. That's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful moment, I believe. So we see in Romans 8, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So remember, we're talking about this idea of we believe in one God, the Father. We're saying, let's take this opportunity to meditate on the Trinity and on the invitation that's been extended to us into the unity of the Trinity. So we've seen that Jesus, through his death on the cross, has made a way for us to enter into the same kind of relationship he has. And now we see the Holy Spirit is also involved. Right? He's giving us the ability to cry out. He's giving us the confidence. He's giving us the knowledge in our hearts. Yes, I am a son of God. Yes, the Father loves me the same way he loves Jesus. Okay? So awesome. It goes on. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. This should be blowing our minds, just saying. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So this brings us back to Psalm 2. The Lord has said to me, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So this idea of inheritance is really important in the father-son relationship. We see this on the earth, obviously. Okay? And it comes in here, it comes in in Romans 8. We get to be co-heirs now. So this is really fun. Because the nations is the Gentiles, right? You can pretty much read anywhere in Scripture where it says the nations, that means... The nations besides Israel, the Gentile nations. 
So we are the inheritance of Jesus, the Son. We're also the co-heirs with him. How does that work? I love it. We are the inheritance and we're inheriting as well. So beautiful. All right. Any quick reflections or questions? There's a, obviously a lot more we could say about the Father. What I wanted to do more than anything was give you an example. How can you take this and begin to meditate on the Trinity through something like this? We believe in the Father. I mean, one of the things that comes to mind in, in the shift at the cross is Jesus throughout his whole life, as he would have been taught by you know, his mother, you know, knowing that uh, um, God was his actual like, biological father, right? And um, after the cross, kind of the release of Christ, and um, I don't know how to put this into the words, but you know, being available, right? So Christ with us, and in almost a different way than Christ was with us in the man Jesus before the resurrection. Mm. And so, um, which is a real gift of the Father uh, and a real mystery uh, at that point. Right. So, that's the beginning of a long discussion I'll stop there. Yeah. I mean, it, it brings us you know, you must be born again in John. Now this begins to take on even more meaning. All right. The Almighty. You know, it's interesting to me. Um, a little side note. The part about the Father is so short. Did any of y'all notice that? Compared to Jesus. I mean, this is God. How, why did we not fill pages and pages? I mean, Almighty is one part of his qualities, his attributes. Why not the merciful? Why not the just? It's just interesting to me that, you know, I think part of that is the context. That the question they were addressing was the nature of Christ. But there's other reasons, too, which I think Sandy might touch on. You know, there's things that this derives harkens back to that are short and creedal in nature. So we're inheriting it. So this is not meant to be exclusionary. He's only the Almighty, but he is the Almighty. Now, are we going to talk about this? No, we're not. We're going to pray about it. Okay? So in your packet, let me see if I should have a packet somewhere. There's a, a prayer to start the day. Do you see that? Prayer to begin the day. This is a Trinitarian prayer written by George Miley. I highly recommend it. He literally begins every day with this prayer. George does. We're going to pray the first part because the first part is such a lovely prayer that takes what we're talking about and makes it personal and takes it back up to God. And here's how we're going to pray it. I'm going to start with, we're all going to pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then I'm going to start with the, the bowl. And then someone else, jump in with the next paragraph. Who? Whoever. We're not in a hurry, so don't feel like you have to. 
But when you're ready, pray that next paragraph, and then someone else after that jump in with the paragraph. So we're going to pray through it, not in a hurried way, but in a, you know, we can't take 30 minutes to do it, but, but I'm not assigning people to pray. Does that make sense? Yep. All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, I thank you for the unique way you have created me. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful to be able to approach my Creator in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with reverence and fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You are God. I am not. You are in control. Hallelujah. Father, I know that the fact that I exist is not the result of random chance. A decision was made by a person that I would come into being. I was not that person. I did not exist. You, Father, were that person. You decided the year in which I would be born, and you chose my parents. You formed me in my mother's womb. You decided whether I would be male or female. You gave me my unique characteristics. You formed the parts of my body, arms, legs, fingers and toes. You gave me a heart that could pump, lungs that could breathe, eyes that could see, and ears that could hear. You were my, with my mother and me while I was being born. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Thank you. I honor you, Heavenly Father, by honoring the parents who chose for me. I honor my earthly father. Thank you for all I have received from my mother. Lord Jesus, I bring to your cross any ways in which I have dishonored them. In doing so, I sinned against you, against them, and against myself. I ask for your mercy, your cleansing, and your healing. In any ways in which my parents call me by your grace, I forgive them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Amen. Isn't that a beautiful prayer to respond to the first part of the Nelson Creed? Love it. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Maker. What do you think, Bree, when you hear that word, maker? Creator, also, it could obviously be. Crafter, I imagine hands. Create, craft, holding, and touching, very, making details. Yeah. Watching and attending. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else? I think of Dorothy Sayers' book, The Mind of the Maker, in which she makes the analogy uh, of orchestry uh, and, and uh, painters and yes. sculptors and so and, and, and Christian heresies, really, <laughs> I think. But, but, she, but she does explore this idea of God of labor. Right. This gives really. It should be a shot in the arm for the artists in our midst. Yeah, I think of a, this wild creativity of God. When I first got to know God well, I was in Cincinnati, Ohio, and went to the Cincinnati Zoo and went into the aquarium room. So there's a wall of, of fish on this side and a wall on the other side. So everywhere you turned, you saw it. And there were a skillion fish here and a skillion here. And they were... It was, the, it was like the most overwhelming thing to me to see them. They're so different. They're so amazingly beautiful and not. And everyone was different from the other and there are so many. And some were on the bottom and some were on the top and some were swimming here of different sizes. Madeline's going to bring Dobby in for an example. <laughs> and then you turned and saw them on this side and I was aware that some are probably never seen by humans. They've been fished out of a place that only God sees them. And yet it pleased him to make them so wildly beautiful and different and then not so beautiful and different and so many and all to his pleasure. Right. Yikes. I couldn't believe it. He had forethought of creation, right? If you ever have made something or created something, it wasn't just like by accident, right? And so God intimately knows all of his creation, mm. you know, just like Jim Jane, you know, on that painting knows, you know, the pencil lines or what the canvas was like behind it, you know, we just see, you know, a, a, a portion of, you know, what the artist knows about uh, yeah. his creation. Yeah. And yet there often are little accidents that get incorporated in, and so I, I often wonder about that, like what are the little things that, that Right. sets in motion. Kathy Gregory will talk about that in the relationship with printmaking, that there are things you control and then things that are just set in motion by what you have put, and then you just watch, and you see, you see what it does. And so I think there's, I, I love that aspect yeah. of it too, like the, the creating, creating the structure, and then you put the ink over it, and you see what happens when it interacts with the paper. Hmm. So you're, you're yes. creating, creating yes. it, and, it. and watching it go. 
There's the, there's the beautiful order that science addresses, like, you know, the phylums of mammal and, you know, reptile, etc. And then you also love God throwing out the platypus and saying, deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do with that? <laughs> yeah. Duck bill, lays eggs, gus fur, have fun. Yeah. <laughs> I love that uh, where it says in Revelation, thou art worthy, thou art worthy, thou art worthy, O Lord. And for thy pleasure, they are created. Out, and thou art worthy, O Lord. Everything is created for his pleasure, for his enjoyment. And, and, and um, I remember one of my daughters saying, she goes to mops out in like Georgetown, and there's this woman who comes and speaks to the mops groups, and she's an older woman, and she's a potter. And she sits as she talks at, about her, her life and her each of us has our own story. Well, whatever, I'll call it a story. Uh, her story. And, and then she'll be forming this beautiful, you know, clay pot, and then all of a sudden she just smashes it down because of, you know, whatever part of the story she's in, that that's what's happened. And then, you know, she continues and she builds it back up. And she says, by the end of the story, after she's told all that God has done in her life and her family's life, everyone in the room is weeping. But there's just this beautiful pot, you know, but there's this constant, you know, it, it, it's just mud and water. Yes. But there's this just constant process, and God is working in each of us in that way. It's amazing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So this is the first thing we learn about God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Remember, we're, we're kind of playing with, experimenting with, enjoying, approaching the creed as a meditation on the Trinity. So what do we have in verse 2? The Spirit of God. Isn't that interesting? You have God creating, and you have the Spirit of God hovering. So right at the beginning, you have the Trinity involved in creation. Now, what did that look like? Well, we actually get a little hint of it. If you have a Bible, turn to Proverbs 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles around. Grab one and turn to Proverbs 8. So Proverbs 8 is about wisdom. And historically, 
Wisdom has been interpreted as the Holy Spirit. Where it talks about wisdom in Proverbs and in the book of wisdom, you can understand that there's revelation being given about the nature of the Holy Spirit. So, Bree, I just love your voice in this whole area of creation. Would you mind reading verses 22 through 31? Proverbs, here you go. Proverbs 8. No, <laughs> that's funny. This is the Holy Spirit in creation. 22. 22 through 31. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works, before his deeds of old. I was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before the world began. When there were no oceans, I was given birth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the earth, or its fields, or any of the dust of the world, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep. When he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command. And when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Isn't that beautiful? So lovely. The Holy Spirit and the Father working together in the days of creation. Now this is poetry, so we're not going to try to make, turn it into theology. But when you're meditating on the Trinity, this is passages like this are very helpful. Because they give you a sense of the relationship between the Father and the Spirit. Right? In the act of creation. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence. And what about Jesus, the Son, in the act of creation? Well, we know from John chapter 1, from Colossians 1, nothing was made that was not made through him. Right? Right. So then you begin to get a little window into, okay, You've got the Father, you've got the Spirit working in a certain... You've also got the Son involved in this act of creation. When we say maker of heaven and earth, hopefully this begins to give you a picture of... I don't know if you've ever had the experience of working on a team in school or on an art project or something where it all just clicks and you're working together well and everybody's doing their role and what you're doing is beautiful and it comes out just right. If you ever have that experience, that's like what's happening only way, 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 way. I mean, a pot of lentils more, right? Yeah. It's awesome. Well, we also want to meditate on the invitation into the unity of the Trinity. So here we have a beautiful picture of the way that the Trinity is working in creation. Do we get any sense of this invitation? It's beautiful. 
You certainly get it here, right? Rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. That takes us back to Genesis 1. And it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. What was very good? God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. So something about being male and female is a reflection of the Trinity. Let us make man in our own image. So right there you get a sense, okay, something's going on with the creation of man that has to do with the Trinity. And in fact, I'm going to go a little bit on a limb here and say, to me, verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 1, you have the masculine and the feminine. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Especially if it was a big bang. I mean, what guy doesn't like creating a big bang? Right? And the spear was there brooding over the waters. I mean, such a, to me, such a feminine image. And let us make, make man in our own image, male and female, created he them. It's just, oh, it's, there's something going on with God and the relationship of God to God. And in fact, the very act of creation is an invitation into the unity of the Trinity because it was unnecessary. The Trinity is perfectly content in a certain way in itself. Relationship exists through eternity between the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet somehow, how can it be that a relationship is perfectly contented and yet also wants to expand and wants to create something else that's brought into that? Well, we see that all the time, right? A young couple gets married. They're beautiful and they're so content and they're delighting in each other. Well, they want to expand. And so children are almost like an act of creation where you want to make something else that can share in this love that we're experiencing. And then the love changes and the nature of the relationships change. And I'm out of time. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 8, 5 through 6. We're going to get more of this later. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and then here's the invitation, and we for him. See that? And Jesus Christ through whom are all things, Once again, the invitation, and through whom we live. So we've been invited into this beautiful relationship of the Trinity through the blood of Christ. Pelican makes the point that this is pretty much the first part of the Nicene Creed. And that in many ways it's thought that this was an early creed of the church that Paul is quoting. Truman also makes this point and says, so you think there's no creeds in the Bible? This is one example of a creed that's cited by the New Testament authors. And they're saying, this is what we believe. Here's a summary of it. All right. I'm done. The children are here.